is the meaning of life? This question seems to regard meaning as purpose. What is my life for? This question at least presupposes that life has a purpose. Human beings have been wrestling with this since ancient times, and religious answers have served to provide answers for almost as long. I don't need to discover my own purpose if God created me for his purpose. The responsibility is God's in such a case. Accepting on faith that God's purpose for me is good, I can pursue that purpose to the best of my ability and hope for some forgiveness to the extent that I let him down. And being just, God might grant me that forgiveness. After all, I am his creation and he knows that I am flawed and sinful. But what if we come to realize that there is no God? Famously, Friedrich Nietzsche warned us about the implications of this realization. In The Gay Science, Nietzsche wrote, quote, God is dead. God remains dead, and we have killed him. How shall we, murderers of all murderers, console ourselves? That which was the holiest and mightiest of all that the world is yet possessed has bled to death under our knives, unquote. How indeed will we console ourselves? We are now forced to define a purpose for ourselves, or let go of purpose altogether and descend into nihilism. This episode is not about meaning as purpose, but rather about meaning as relationship, the way that a word means the thing to which it refers, or a falling rock means danger to the man standing at the base of the cliff. Meaning, understood this way, is central to consciousness. As human beings, meanings are of a nature that accords with our needs and objectives. If the cliff were conscious, it would hardly think that the rock tumbling down its surface means danger. Hell, the cliff probably wouldn't even notice. What is meaning? I think meaning refers to a relationship between things. Consider mathematical relationships like 6 is twice 3. There is a relationship here between a group of concepts, the quantity 2, the quantity 3, and the quantity 6. Quantitative relationships like these are clearly definable. Related to quantitative relationships are comparative relationships like big and small, high and low, more and less, darker and lighter, softer and harder. By implicitly comparing a thing to the concept of something else, we come to know its meaning along some dimension. Every dimension along which this is accomplished further defines what the thing is. The definition of the thing amounts to the set of comparative relationships necessary to distinguish it from all other things. Association produces new relationships between concepts by means of altering the neural network through learning so the meaning of a particular plant might come to include the concept edible. Language is an interesting case of associational learning. The relationship between the sound of the English word egg and the roundish hard casing from which baby birds emerge is, of course, arbitrary. But in time, the sound egg produces in the English speaker's mind the concept egg, and likewise the appearance of the thing we call egg brings to mind in turn the arbitrary word. So the process of learning allows us to form connections between what would otherwise be unrelated. In terms of Hume's three principles, we can, through experience, come to understand that two things bear some resemblance to one another along some dimension, or that they occur together in a correlative manner, or that one of the things causes the other. Often the appropriate association depends on the context. John Searle argued that conscious contents are semantic, that they have meaning. Contrasting a computer program for mental functions, he wrote in his book, The Mystery of Consciousness, quote, The important point 
is that the mechanism is defined entirely in terms of the manipulation of symbols. Computation, so defined, is a purely syntactical set of operations, in the sense that the only features of the symbols that matter for the implementation of the program are the formal or syntactical features. But we know from our own experience that the mind has something more going on in it than the manipulation of formal symbols. Minds have contents. For example, when we are thinking in English, the English words going through our minds are not just uninterpreted formal symbols, rather we know what they mean. For us, the words have a meaning, or semantics. The mind could not just be a computer program, because the formal symbols of the computer program by themselves are not sufficient to guarantee the presence of the semantic content that occurs in actual minds." Unquote. Searle formulated his Chinese room thought experiment in order to distinguish between computation as it occurs in machines and mental processes as they occur in consciousness. He wrote, quote, Imagine that you carry out the steps in a program for answering questions in a language you do not understand. I do not understand Chinese, so I imagine that I am locked in a room with a lot of boxes of Chinese symbols, the database. I get small bunches of Chinese symbols passed to me, questions in Chinese, and I look up in a rule book, the program, what I am supposed to do. I perform certain operations on the symbols in accordance with the rules, that is, I carry out the steps in a program, and give back small bunches of symbols, answers to the questions, to those outside the room. I am the computer implementing a program for answering questions in Chinese, but all the same, I do not understand a word of Chinese, and this is the point. If I do not understand Chinese solely on the basis of implementing a computer program for understanding Chinese, then neither does any other digital computer solely on that basis. Because no digital computer has anything that I do not have." Unquote. Searle here illustrates the difference between syntax, which is to say symbols, and semantics, which is to say meaning. Conscious contents are always meaningful. I make this claim because given any content in consciousness, there is at least some degree of qualitative distinction between the presence of the content and its absence. Something has changed in the conscious composition. Qualia are meaningful features of meaningful contents. Suppose I place an object into your hand while your eyes are closed. You feel its size and shape, weight and texture, and report proudly, egg. I nod and check the box next to genius on my clipboard. But how have you accomplished this monumental task? In one second, you establish the size and shape of the object relative to your hand, which is equipped with a sensory field of receptors. Its temperature, its texture, its weight, the qualia each occur to you in your mind, all referred to a specified position in space, the area occupied by the hand. None of this is taking place in that spatial location, but in the sensory cortex. Thus, the real situation that gives rise to conscious perception is totally unknown to you. Only the meaning is known. Christoph Koch has suggested that qualia are symbols. In the quest for consciousness, in a section titled, Qualia are Symbols, he writes, quote, Given the large number of discrete attributes that make up any one percept, and the even larger number of relevant relationships among them, phenomenal feelings have evolved to deal with the attendant complexities of handling all of this information in real time. Qualia are potent symbolic representations of a fiendish amount of simultaneous information associated with any one percept, its meaning." Unquote. Given the difference between syntax and semantics, I think Koch has this idea backwards. 
The actual meaning of integrated neuronal activity is what we directly experience. Notice I'm not claiming this is the objective meaning of the thing that is being perceived. In fact, the objective thing doesn't have a meaning. If meaning is the relationship among things, only a system in which they simultaneously co-occur can compose meaning. So qualia aren't symbols. The underlying neuronal activity stands in a syntactic relationship to the objective features of the world. A train of action potentials is a translation of features of the material world into symbols. Action potentials in this regard are symbols of the material world. But remember, we do not and could not, could never, experience that material world. We can only experience what is a part of us. Qualia are something altogether different from the material world which they represent. But qualia don't arise from the environment which impinges on our receptor systems. They arise within an integrated system of neural activity. We experience conscious contents in the form of meaning. You might think that this can't be so because we often don't understand conscious contents, can't clearly describe or define them to ourselves or to others. But I suggest that this difficulty arises from our attempt to translate the qualia into symbols, as happens when we attempt to explain our feelings or to analyze our experiences. In such cases, we are not struggling to extract meaning from phenomenal symbols. Rather, we are struggling to extract symbols from phenomenal meanings. When I observe a complex object such as a tree, I immediately experience the tree, a familiar thing in its totality. I do not see green and brown and vertical and rough-surfaced and leafy and branching and all the rest, and then conclude tree. The meaning to me is tree right from the start. That meaning is associated with everything that I have learned across a lifetime, from seeing trees and hearing about trees, from climbing them or walking among them. Thus, meanings can have associated meanings. And there are meanings of meanings of meanings. That is, there are relationships between the relationships between things. My framework for consciousness, the Temporally Integrated Causality Landscape, TICL, achieves an explanation for meaning in a way that I don't think any other theory does. According to the TICL, consciousness is composed of meaningful contents established in the relationship between a large integrated system and some number of integrated and differentiated subsystems existing within that system. A subsystem is a group of neuronal elements within the system that has a higher degree of temporally integrated causality than the larger system has. So the level of temporally integrated causality for the whole system from which consciousness arises sets a threshold for meaning. Any subsystem will produce meaningful content. So the vast majority of random groups of neurons in the network will not produce conscious contents. They will not have meaning. Because the cerebral cortex is organized, it's not random, the particular subsystems that occur at any given time will have particular specific contents that are meaningful from the point of view of the system as a whole. The insight that contents of consciousness emerge inside of a larger point of view provides a framework for explaining meaning. As I have said, meaning is the relationship between things. In the objective world, there can be no relationship between things. There can only be the discrete things themselves. Relationships can only occur in the mind. The universe and all that it contains exists. It is, but it is meaningless. The conscious mind exists too, and it is nothing except meaning. It experiences relationships among things, sees how they are connected. In an inquiry concerning human understanding, David Hume writes, quote, It is evident 
that there is a principle of connection between the different thoughts or ideas of the mind, and that in their appearance to the memory or imagination, they introduce each other with a certain degree of method and regularity. In our more serious thinking or discourse, this is so observable that any particular thought which breaks in upon the regular tract or chain of ideas is immediately remarked and rejected. And even in our wildest and most wandering reveries, nay, in our very dreams, we shall find, if we reflect, that the imagination ran not altogether at adventures, but that there was still a connection upheld among the different ideas which succeeded each other. Were the loosest and freest conversation to be transcribed, there would immediately be observed something which connected it in all its transitions. Or where this is wanting, the person who broke the thread of discourse might still inform you that there had secretly revolved in his mind a succession of thought which had gradually led him from the subject of conversation." Unquote. Hume says that there are only three principles of connection among ideas. Resemblance, contiguity in time or place, and cause and effect. These principles of connection establish the associations that we make between things. When we speak of qualia, such as the redness of red, the phenomenal feel, we are often talking about features that do not exist on their own. We do not experience redness, except when we see or at least imagine something which is characterized by it. So if we see an apple that is red, the redness, as well as the roundness, the smoothness, and all the other attributes stand as factors of the apple. These are like common principles that we might notice across a set of things or events. Hume argued that we can only know these principles by means of experience, not by a priori reasoning. The qualia serve as elements of experience. Scientists did not discover the chemical elements by looking around and collecting them. Rather, they had to be distilled from chemical compounds. Qualia are fundamental meanings. Normally, we encounter conscious contents that are more like chemical compounds, things like objects and people. These are meanings which contain more fundamental meanings. By nature and by nurture, human conscious experience is full of meanings. Meaning is subjective. The human brain did not evolve to establish truth. It evolved to establish success. Fortunately for those of us with a high regard for empiricism, it is reasonable to assume that an accurate portrayal of the objective world is being translated via the nervous system into the com conscious composition of contents. When something or someone is there in the environment, it would be most serviceable to know its location, what it is doing, what experience suggests we should feel about it. A reliable sense of the environment is useful. But consider goals and values. A wolf standing nearby, given the right context, is a threat to me. But it isn't a threat to its pack mate. It is an ally. It might be an opportunity to a vulture who, upon its taking a prey animal, could get a piece of the meal for itself. We are all seeing the same wolf, but what does wolf mean? That depends on who you are, your point of view. We subjective entities are isolated from one another in that we cannot share the meanings we experience. We can only do our best to symbolize those meanings in the form of words or musical notes or gestures such that the receiver of our message can reconstruct the meanings for themselves. And how often do these communications get misinterpreted? Perhaps all the time. This realization can be dispiriting because of the deeply felt need that we have for social connection. Ultimately, I'm afraid we are on our own, on our own and without God to give us purpose. But I think that the kind of meaning I have been discussing in this episode might go some distance toward rescuing meaning in the other sense, meaning as purpose. Consciousness establishes subjective meaning, 
At least that is the argument that I have attempted to posit. Is the Milky Way objectively beautiful? Is the birth of a child objectively wonderful? Is the death of a young man to save his comrades on the battlefield objectively heroic? Is it objectively tragic? The answer to all of these questions is, of course, no. So what is our role as the conscious beings of our universe? We are the keepers of meaning. We carry it with us in its thousands of forms, each of us endowed with a distinct point of view from which to grasp it. This is our great responsibility. The material world is not greater than us or more important or more real. We diminish ourselves by pretending that it is. We look out upon the vastness of our universe and think how small we are. But why should we measure ourselves upon the scale of spatial expanse? But the universe has been here for billions of years, and it will persist for billions of years when we are gone. Why should we measure ourselves by duration and time? How great is the meaning of being alive in comparison to so meager a thing as a universe? Our lives are concentrated in space and time, a syntropy that enables immense value, that makes those lives worth living. And I, for one, am grateful. Imagine that you are an immortal soul. Imagine that you exist across space and time, that you are omniscient and omnipresent. You have no point of view. You are one with everything. Suppose you were given the chance to experience being, complete with a life and things that matter to you, a being with a point of view. You could be a human being on planet Earth in the 21st century. Wouldn't you take that opportunity? Wouldn't you want to know what it feels like to be in love? to be awestruck by a piece of music, to be inspired by a great book, to have meaning? What brings reasoning and introspection and creativity all together is the exploration of the meanings of meanings. The word meaning can be understood to stand for two ideas, one purpose and the other relation. For us, the conscious, the keepers of meaning, meaning is our meaning. Mm -hmm.